Hello, and welcome to the Net OGs, an original podcast series brought to you by Duration Media. I'm your host, Andy Batkin. This series asks and answers the question, what was the internet like before the internet was a thing, and who were the original players? Each week, I'll be joined by an OG, not an old guy or gal, but the true original gangsters of the internet. Grab a drink, sit back and learn how the largest medium in the world was built and listen to never before heard stories from some of the visionaries that formed the first internet media companies and digital ad agencies. On today's episode, I'm joined by Gina Garubo. Gina has spent more than 20 years growing marketing and sales teams, launching brands, and building companies with extensive experience in traditional and digital media. In the early 1990s, Gina was Divisional Vice President of Sales for Discovery Communications. She then moved on to be one of the key executives responsible for building women.com, one of the first websites for women, and for making BlogHer into the largest multi-platform community for women in social media. Currently, she is CEO of National Public Media, the corporate sponsorship subsidiary of NPR. Please welcome a real net OG, Gina Garubo. <laughs> Thanks, Andy. Great to be here. It's wonderful to see you after all of these years. <laughs> Too long. Yeah, it is. It is. We're going to have a fun hour together. So uh, here we go. You had one of the most coveted jobs in, in uh, traditional media, uh, working for Discovery Communications. In the early 90s, not a lot of traditional companies were involved in the internet. So help us understand how, how Discovery actually started uh, getting involved at such an early stage. Right. So... Discovery launched discovery.com in the mid nineties. And I was heading up Eastern advertising sales. And one of the guys on my team, Dan Hodges and I were constantly connecting with the technology team to find out about their interactive TV trials and what this internet thing was. And so my boss, Bill McGowan basically said, look, help us figure out how to monetize this thing. So we sold what we called ad placements. And since I was very influential, these ad placements were quite large. <laughs> they were 20 to 25% of the page. They were horizontal units. Uh, we sold share a voice and locked the ads in for a month or a quarter. We limited the number of brands we allowed in. Uh, it was really hard to find sponsors on one hand, but on the other hand, Discovery's top categories, automotive, financial, technology, communications, they were the early players online. So I remember we did an upfront with BMW very early on. They, they were one of the earliest and strongest advertisers online and they had amazing creative, AT&T had creative, Intel, but really, you know, you could count on one hand uh, the agencies and players that were involved in it in the early days. And it was funny 
some of the guys on my team would say to me, oh, don't make me do that internet thing in my <laughs> upfront. You're just gonna mess it up. It's too complicated. It's so small, it's ridiculous. Please don't make me do it. <laughs> we, we did it and, and it was great. So who, who was the champion in management that decided to you know, create discovery.com or have the vision for what that could be? Well, John Hendricks, the CEO of Discovery, was a visionary from the start. And he really wanted uh, our technology team to figure this out. So I'm gonna give all the credit to John Hendricks. So was, was he the one who came down to you and said, well, now that we're gonna do this, we need to, we need to monetize it? And he told my boss, Bill McGowan, the head of sales, we had to monetize it. I, I mean, I had a great relationship with John, but he tapped Bill who tapped me. So what, what were those early pitches like? You know, <laughs> maybe, maybe focus on you know, the ones where you did brand direct and then maybe you know, one where, where you, you pitched an agency. Well, we had excellent relationships with all of the brands at Discovery. So we had access, but you know, they would kind of scratch their head. They would try to figure out what it was and you know, I think you had said to me, you know, when I was in television, nobody asked me how a television worked. It was, but on the internet, they all wanted to know how it worked. And we were just like, think about your brand on a new platform in front of like a more tech savvy audience. They might be small, but it's a very smart audience. They're leaning in, they're future forward. And it was sort of like the haves and the have nots. There were some who really got it and wanted to go there. And there were some who were like, don't bother me with this. And so we just hung out with the people who did. I mean, Moda Media, which is John Nardone and Sharon Katz and Walt Shirk and Jocelyn Griffin, they really got it. Uh, Ogilvy had Jeff Minsky, who we never called Jeff. From the beginning, everybody always called them Minsky. Uh, so there were pockets of people you could play with. So when, when did you guys decide that, um, that the strategy was to toss the internet opportunities, the internet advertising opportunities into the upfront discussions? Well, we started very early. We tried in 94, but I think it, we really didn't get our first upfront until 95. And in 96, we were doing it more. And then it just, it grew and it started becoming a thing. The automotives really, you know, poured the juice on. AT&T was spending a lot, American Express, so. As I said, you had one of the most coveted jobs, you know, working in traditional media discovery. Uh, uh, I think when we were, we were chatting, you told me that every day a headhunter called to try to convince you to move to you know, some startup or some other brand that was a media company that was uh, getting involved in the internet. What, what made you pick up the phone from the headhunter? That It was a fluke. I actually, I didn't even take those calls. I would either, you know, get a message that I didn't answer or sometimes a, an email. But for some reason, I picked up my phone and the headhunter got me to take a look at women.com and they had a money channel, fashion, health, and entertainment. I, th I think they had four or five channels. And 
when I read it, I, I just couldn't believe it. It was, it was a voice for women in the universe I had never heard. They assumed women were intelligent. They, the Money Channel assumed women were making money, making investment decisions, wanted investment advice. I was just knocked out. I couldn't believe it. They had message boards. They were asking women, you know, instead of the do's and don'ts on a fashion channel, it was like, hey, this is what they were showing in Paris at the fashion week. Would you wear this? I, I, it was just amazing. So, you know, I got sucked in. I flew to California. I met with Ellen Pack, the founder, Marlene McDaniel, the CEO, some of the venture capitalists. You know, I didn't even know what a VC was before then. <laughs> and I met with many of the editors, many of whom came from Fortune, Forbes, and traditional media. It was, it was electric. It was, you know, a company for women, run by women. I was just... I was thrilled, um, and and when I made the leap, my friends in TV and uh, you know anybody who grew up in television like I did knew you know it's a very tight knit group. They they were actually afraid for me. They thought I had lost my mind. They didn't understand this internet thing was so tiny. They knew I loved my job. I loved my job at Discovery. I, I, I tell you, it was one of the best jobs you could have in those days. Um, but the lore of the internet and, and that interactivity and that aliveness and, and the spontaneity, um, it just, it, nothing like that had existed. So I went, I took a, a cut and pay that was half, but I owned a piece of the company. And it was an opportunity to report to a CEO, to help run an organization. You know, I do want to give a shout out to Ellen and Marlene. They had actually sold what I think was one of the earliest sponsorship opportunities to Levi Strauss. It was a, a destination called Getting There, and it was for young women looking for career advice and, and jobs. So when I went over in 96, they had actually kicked off a little bit of sponsorship stuff. I was the first head of advertising sales, but they had a little, you know, experience and they were open to growing it. So I'm, I'm fascinated by the fact that, that you uh, had this coveted job and got wowed by uh, Ellen and Marlene at, at women.com. But who did you look to for advice when making this decision to jump ship, so to speak? Well, it's interesting. Most of my friends were too horrified. They, they would not support me in it. So I reached out to a family friend, an older woman who owned her own newspaper, small local newspaper. But she said, my God, you know, go for it. You know, don't worry about it. If it doesn't work out, you know, at your level with your experience, you'll get another job. Just go for it. It, it, it was it was exciting, but scary. And I leaned on her, Jean Conlon, to help me. Did you, did you think that it was going to be as big as it is today? In my gut, in my heart, yes. Could I exactly see it? No. I mean, one of my favorite expressions, and I don't know who I stole it from, was, I don't know what I'm doing but I know exactly what I'm doing. And <laughs> I, I just, I, there was just this mesmerizing pull. And once I got in there, you know, and started working, you know, with the IAB 
and others, you know, and then I found friends and you have to understand so many of the people who left jobs like mine to go to the internet, we were filled with optimism and we, and the, and there was so much mutual respect, you know, across buy and sell side, anybody who was involved because, because it was hard and it was complicated and it was small. I was very lucky a fellow named Chris Crane from Discovery came with me. And thank God, because we laughed hard and often, because it, it was really like being in a different world. The cultural change was significant. You know, we would go to work in television in expensive suits and dresses, and there was very much a formality to network and national TV negotiations, and there's a lot of money on the line. And in the internet, we were literally making it up every day. <laughs> and, um, you know, we were earnest and we were smart, but, you know, we were making it up. So, so that's the perfect segue is to describing what this transition was like. I mean, you, you really started to discuss that, you know, with, you know, the old people in TV used to call the, the, you know, the whole TV thing, the sheet. And they, they missed the sheet when they would go to, uh, start managing, you know, the sales process and the internet. But so tell us about the transition. Well, it was a cultural shift for me because I commuted to California two weeks a month for the first two and a half years. And there I was on planes packed full of mostly men, direct flights to San Francisco from New York, these men in their dockers with those giant laptops and we'd all be vying for <laughs> upgrades and you know meeting the folks from yahoo and other internet destinations and just it was a complete culture shift the folks from east coast media sort of dismissed a lot of what was happening in silicon valley at the time and i found a lot of the vcs and folks in Silicon Valley were dismissive of those old media dinosaurs. So I was somewhere in the middle and it was, it was interesting. And my friends from TV and I would see each other and I'd be like, yeah, here I am. You can see me, but you have no idea what this world is like. It's, it's very different. It's a different language. It's a, it's a different mode. It's a different cast of characters. So what, what was it like being a woman in this business? And, and you know, to me, it's fascinating because you're working for women.com, you know, as well. So uh, tell us, tell us about those early days and, and how it was to be. You well, know. it was, it was interesting because, you know, the biggest sites, ESPN, Disney, Yahoo, um, they were selling to those categories that were important to us at Discovery, the technology and the automotive and the financial. So, you know, P&G came in 1998, Pete Blackshaw uh, called for an interactive confab and our gal Lillian Gildan, who is just amazing, who created uh, wonderful things with P&G at women.com. Um, but before that, we really, we went after automotive and financial and we did very well. The packaged goods were later. And so we had to go into the automotives and say, women are buying cars. Women are making 
buying decisions and they got it, but it, it was, it was very difficult. Uh, we had a lot of primary research we were doing. So we knew how women were managing money, uh, going online for all kinds of health tips. It was funny. Our research would, researchers were doing ethnographic studies and they would see how women had stickies on their computers. And after the kids went to bed, they were getting health information, vacation information, you know, helping their kids with homework. So, you know, we knew what the potential was, but um, it was hard to convince brands. I, I will say one of the things I'm proudest of, in 1998, we had 27 financial advertisers. Scudder, Strong, Fidelity, Schwab. They, they were all waking up to the fact that women were making money and looking for investment advice. So, so being a woman was a non-event, didn't matter. You just had a great product to sell. So you weren't looked upon any differently on the internet well, side, vis-a-vis -vis traditional media where you obviously had been hugely successful already. Yeah, I, I never felt that being a woman uh, put us at a disadvantage. I think money for women-oriented sites was behind where the other categories was. So that aspect was more difficult. The beauty companies didn't come on for a while, but early on we created microsites for brands like Toyota and Whisk. For Whisk, our, our microsite was uh, full load and it included laundry tips. And then for P&G, with Lillian and a gal named Karen Kavavit, they created something called Homemade Simple, which we sold the rights to PNG for. It ended up becoming a television and online franchise. Wow. <laughs> really innovative, exciting stuff. I, I mean, to say we made it up every day is no exaggeration. I remember in 97 being in a negotiation with Walt Shirk at Modem, and it was for a JC Penny shopping spree giveaway we were organizing and very early on to be doing stuff like that. And Walt was complaining about the price I wanted to charge them. And I said, okay, we'll just show, throw in some research questions. We'll ask them about JCPenney, about their shopping habits. We'll see if they want to hear from JCPenney, you know, maybe participate in research. And he's like, I love that. We'll do that. And that, that became a new model for us. Yeah, the research angle, I remember, you know, when we were selling for Yahoo was the ticket, you know, it was because there was, there was no bucket of money for internet per se, right? So you had to, you had to find that bucket. Uh, so um, before, before we, we get into some of those great stories, you know, about um, the, the clients you sold into uh, some more, I'm really curious, how, how did you build the team? I mean, you, 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 you came from some internet experience, which was rare. Um, so how did you find the people to, to build your team as women.com grew and, and, and where did they come from? I hate to say it, but my early crew was all men. <laughs> I, it was really hard to find women who wanted to sell internet advertising. I don't think we got our first woman in sales on board till 98. 
Uh, Shamika Frank, who's over at ESPN, came on very early on as our assistant and, you know, worked her way up. And Karen Kavavit worked her way up from assistant. But uh, Doug Weiner in Chicago came from traditional media. Chris Crane came from traditional media. Adam Gordon came from traditional media, Jonathan LeConte. So we had a lot of guys from traditional media, Jason Bowman early on. And, you know, it was funny, all these men, they loved sellingwomen.com. They were so proud of it. And um, like I said, it was hard to get women early on. Later, we got a lot of women, but early on, it was mostly guys. I, I remember when we created uh, Camp Internet in Beaver Creek, Colorado in the summer of 95, I think it was, could have been 96, but I think it's 95. And people registered. And I remember looking at the team, the, you know, the event team and going, I, are there any women coming to this thing? <laughs> you know, like, and, you know, and Sharon Katz was there from Modem and, you know, a, a few others. And I, I remember my eyes popping out of my head, you know, because, um, you know, my daughter, my youngest daughter, Sam was, you know, an infant and we used to carry her up on the, the stage, right? It's like, and my wife says, I think we're the only two women here. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, do you, do you remember that in the early days of going to these events that you were pretty much the only women that were there? Yeah. Uh, it, but it was interesting because, you know, there were, there were, a number of very talented women early on who built great websites and contributed. So they were there, but we were the minority. I mean, I was, I was elected to the board of the IAB in 96, but I was not part of the original meeting with Rich Lafergie and Richie Glassberg and Scott Schiller, but Kate Everett Thorpe was there and Meg Walsh was over at Medscape and, you know, there were a number of very talented women early yeah, on. I, I remember the early days of the, the IAB that there were a lot of great, uh, really smart women that contributed to Molly that. Ford. Molly Ford, Lynn Bulger, uh, Leslie Laredo yeah, in the Lynn beginning. Yeah, Lynn Bulger, yeah. Right, right. I want to take a quick second to thank our sponsor, Duration Media, an ad tech software company that creates revenue generation solutions for publishers. Duration Media finds, mines, and monetizes only highly viewable ad impressions, which finally makes a product that's good for publishers and advertising. For more information, visit their website at durationmedia.net. So we'll, we'll get to the IAB in a second. I'm, I'm curious as to the, the back to the sales process was that... Um, how, how did you price this? How did you know how to sell it? We talked about research being the kicker, um, you know, and you, your conversations with Walt, you're always trying to, you know, knock down the price. Um, so, so what was that like? How did you do Here's it? Here's my crazy thinking. If somebody, I would make up a number based on a number of things, you know, equivalent CPMs, because, you know, we were trying not to sell on guaranteed audience. That was um, difficult in the days when your audience wasn't that big. So I would make up a number and if a brand bought it, I would tell this team the next time they sold that exact thing, 
they had to double the price. And we just kept doing that as much as we could. And literally that's how we did it. And I mean, I'm talking about the, or the, the mid nineties, late nineties, uh, we got far more formal. And uh, by this was before the IAB T's and C's. Right. So what, what the market would bear is what we would pay, what we would ask and get. Yeah, I, I, I remember some of the stories were, were that the, the click-through rates were so high back then because the banner banner was like content, you know, it's like, you know, it's like, you know, 15, 20% click-through rates. Um, uh, so were you selling it as an accountable medium versus the non-accountable? No. Uh, we did not go that route. We went for branding. And what was interesting was, you know, having these conversations with some of the biggest brands in America and saying, you know, that commercial you're running in daytime television, that's not going to fly here. There are no women hugging mops on women.com. <laughs> and to the financials, we, we helped them you know, with their language and how they were positioning it, because, you know, a lot of brands, frankly, were somewhat condescending to women and they were not used to uh, any publisher advising them on how to speak to their audience, which we considered our audience, but it was a nuanced audience. She was an early adopter. She was, you know, empowered. She was, you know, on the internet and did not want to be lectured to. At least our audience didn't want to be. So one, one of the things that we promote is that hear never before heard stories, you know, from the early days. Uh, I know that you guys really focused a lot of attention on automotive. So, so dig into that incredibly fertile mind of yours and tell us one of the best stories that you can remember about selling into automotive? I think one of, I have two funny stories. One, you know, it's eight o'clock at night. I'm talking to uh, the head of media for one of the uh, big three automotives. We're talking about a multi-model upfront. And he's like, and this deal point number five, where did you get that? And I said, oh, I made that up. <laughs> is that what we're doing? We're, aren't we just making this up? And he was like, oh, for God's sakes. Okay. Um, but we had a guy in Detroit named Tony Smile, who we had hired from J. Walter Thompson. Really sharp guy. Was such an automotive guy. And he was jazzed because he, we were talking to one, another big three about a six model up front. And he said, okay, Gina, I've created custom decks I'm going to come, I've created these decks and printed them out. I'm going to come into the office first thing in the morning, print out the cover based on the homepage of women.com tomorrow morning, put the covers on, deliver all the decks, and we're going to be ready to negotiate. I said, okay, Tony. So at around 9.15, I got a call from him and he's like, you know, bingo, all those decks are delivered. And at 10 o'clock, I get a call and Tony is like stuttering. He's so upset. Oh my God, you're not going to believe this. I didn't even look at the homepage. I didn't, I, I, I just don't even know what to say. One of the brand managers called me and he was laughing and yelling and saying, are you crazy? 
And I said, all right, calm down, Tony. And I go online and I look at women.com's homepage. And the lead story was to nip or not to nip. Do I let my nipple show under my work clothes in the office? And he was horrified. It was such a women.com article to write, though. And the brand manager and the other brand managers just terrorized him with this. They laughed that, you know, he was the butt of many jokes, but we did quite a lot of business with that automotive. And they really got who women.com was. And you know, really got the fact that they were reaching an audience that wasn't watching television uh, in the way that, you know, the majority was. And it, it was really funny, a classic <laughs> women.com story. Well, that, that qualifies her never heard before. So that's amazing. <laughs> what a great story. And, and the fact that it still worked, right? That they, they, they ended worked. up buying from you guys is, is, is even, you know, it's like exclamation point on, on the story. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Um, so being a part of the management team, uh, you know, you're, you're now becoming a real brand, uh, a real company. Now you have to start raising some money to become even bigger and better, grow faster. Uh, tell us what was that, what, what that was like. Um, I think you said you, you started raising money around 1996, correct? Well, Marlene and Ellen were raising money from angels and VCs before I got there, but I'll, I'll tell one of my, a, a story that marked a time, it was in 1997, and uh, we walked into a bank in Boston, and it was, I believe it was our A round, and I, I didn't notice what we were all wearing, it was the founder, the CEO, myself and the CFO, we are all in black jackets and black slacks and black t-shirts. <laughs> and we were staring at a wall of men in suits with white shirts and conservative ties. And we sat down and we started our pitch was, which was although women were 38% of the online population at that time, women we're going to equal, if not exceed men online and women were interested in shopping online and connecting with each other online and, you know, investing online. And you could literally see the blood drain from the faces of some of these men. <laughs> One of them blurted out, my wife doesn't even like computers. Like in our heads, we we're like, these guys don't know what we're talking about. And in their heads, they were like, these people are out of their minds. And so that's a story from the early days, but honestly, women.com had fantastic financial and strategic investors from Rodale and Hallmark to Hearst Publishing. Hearst bought 48% of women.com and Kathy Black, the president of publishing really got what women.com could do joining forces with Hearst. She's She's one of the women in media I admired most. And she uh, worked with us to get all the Hearst Magazine titles launched individually online. Um, I don't know if many people know, Hearst was very early as an investor to the internet. They made a lot of money on their Netscape investment early on and went on to invest in a lot of digital entities. They 
they were fantastic. And so that was raising money. And I guess that was our D round. And then later we went public with Morgan Stanley and uh, Alex Brown as our, our co-leads. And um, I was very rich on paper <laughs> for about six months until I wasn't. And, you know, you had the, the dot-com bust. And uh, yeah, I think it's very humbling. Everybody should be very rich for some time and then not. But I lucked out because, you know, over the years, I started a little investing when I was at the Discovery Channel when brands like Microsoft and Dell started uh, spending money on advertising. But then when I went to the internet and I met the Yahoo people, I went back to my office and I bought 200 shares of Yahoo for $7 a share. And sitting in a board meeting with one of my VCs, I saw he had a little doohickey on his laptop. And I said, what is that? And he said, oh, it's wireless. I said, what's wireless? <laughs> he said, well, I can get the internet with this Qualcomm adapter, 200 shares of Qualcomm. And I bought DoubleClick and I bought, so, I had to renovate a house I bought right before the bust and had to sell all of my shares of the internet stock. Thank God. But, you know, I lucked out. But I was uh, not rich from the women.com stock after the bubble burst. So we'll, we'll get to the bust in a, in a second. I am curious, though, about the going public side. Um, what, what was that like? What was the roadshow like? Well, I actually was only on the roadshow a, a few times because Anna Yen, our fabulous head of investor relations, Ellen, Marlene, and the CFO were, were on the road most of the time. They, they really wanted me doing what I was doing, but we had to si stick to a script. And really the story we had to tell, which some investors really were not ready to embrace where that women were a commercial powerhouse, that women were spending significant money. They would, were going to be the driver of internet uh, activity and financial growth. And, you know, that was, and that um, advertisers were going to support uh, publishing sites like women.com. And, you know, it's hard to believe that was a, we were challenged with that. And we, we soon after we went public, launched a, an e-shop on women.com. Oh, I found some merchandise. Oh, that, <laughs> oh that's great. <laughs> but yeah. For, for those of you who, who couldn't see it, it's a woman.com tote bag. Oh. <laughs> That's got to be worth something, right? You yeah, know, so. I, I have that, a hat and some other memorabilia I keep. So uh, talk, talk about the IAB. This was 1996. I remember. So, uh, yeah, I, uh, I found the plaque for it was called the Internet Advertising Bureau in those days. I found <laughs> my board of directors plaque in that bag of things. Um, like I said, there was tremendous camaraderie and Rich Lafergy did an incredible job herding all the folks on what was considered the publishing side, but you had a lot of tech people in there. And 
Really, when it came to creating a lot of the standards enjoyed today, Richie Glassberg was very instrumental. The conversations with the agencies were very stressful, <laughs> very um, uh, combative uh, in terms of what the buy side wanted because you know they they wanted uh, direct accountability in a way and. Um, T's and C's that were for their benefit and not necessarily for the publishing side. It, it all worked out as you know. I mean, I, I'm on the board of the IAB again now in my current role and I give them so much credit. And actually Rich Lafergy is uh, still consulting and, and Dave Moore is still involved and um, it's still, uh, collegial and the Internet Advertising Bureau has a big role to play. They have a, a new CEO, David Cohen, uh, Randall Rothenberg, as many of you know, did a lot of great work building the IAB. And it's really, I think, uh, one of the main reasons Internet advertising grew as well as it did. So there, there was original nine. Um... And then you be, you came in like six months later. I think there was another six or so that that came in at the same time. Well, why did you decide that you needed to focus some some of your valuable time instead of selling for women.com? Obviously, being on the board takes a lot of time. Uh, what what was it about the IB in its early days that made you made you join and and and? Did someone just pick up a phone and call you and say, hey, are you interested? I think in those days, you know, you were on a circuit of conferences and it was a it was a pretty small group of players who were involved. I don't mean like five people, but, you know, everybody pretty much knew everybody. And I remember somebody tapped me at a conference and said, you've got to be on the board of the IAB because we were just creating so many things. And I wanted to be on the board because I knew in my heart, the IAB was gonna be instrumental in creating standards. And I did not want to be locked into standards that I didn't want women.com to live with. As a matter of fact, I was very much against the leaderboard that crummy little ad that went across the top. I wanted the big uh, banners on the side of the page like we had back in the old days at Discovery Channel. And, um, you know, it was, it was something I felt I needed to be a part of. And fortunately, you know, people wanted me to be there. Well, you talk about T's and C's. For those who don't know, that's terms and conditions. Um, the the important part about that, I remember uh, being in Beaver Creek at Camp Internet in 96, and John Nardone and Susan Katz, um, the GM yeah. O'Connell was there, you know, as well. And I remember them sort of flailing their arms and, and you know, there were other players there, Organic, Jonathan Nelson from Organic and, you know, some of the other uh, Minsky from Ogilvy, you know, et cetera. So there was traditional and, you know, new internet, but I remember them saying there's picked up the paper and went, there's look at this agreement from women.com. This one from Yahoo, this one from Netscape, this one, everything all was different. different, right? All different. 
let's just, can we just get the same contract? <laughs> can we? And um, I, I don't know if you agree or not. I mean, I'd love your, your point of view, but I, I think that's what made the business. It, I agree. Right. Those standards and the T's and C's that made it easy for, you know, in those days, the rise of procurement officers. I mean, it was so hard for brands, for CMOs to get internet advertising budgets from their CFOs because they, they were asked to produce a ROI. And in those days, it was hard. So it helped marketing managers get budgets for themselves and their ad agencies to build internet advertising. Yep. So uh, other than T's and C's, was, were there any other things that you worked on in the early uh, days? Well, I wasn't responsible for it, but you know, when I was on the board, it was the early days of branding research. So to prove branding was, you know, um, there was brand lift from internet advertising because so many advertisers wanted it to be a direct response vehicle, which many of us pushed back on. And many of us knew that was, you know, not going to be the, the bright future for everybody. And then the um, annual spending uh, study was showing the media industry how spending on the internet was appreciably rising every year. All those helped. No doubt. And here we are with 54% of all media. Right. <laughs> it's really remarkable, right? And, and growing and still yeah. growing. Uh, it, it's really an amazing accomplishment when you think it's been 25 years. Uh, so speaking of accomplishments, uh, what do you think was your greatest accomplishment at women.com? I think the thing I'm proud of, proudest of at women.com and, and later blog her, uh, which was co-founded by Lisa Stone, our head of content at women.com, Jory Desjardins and Elise Camahort Page, was the democratization of media, you know, my first job out of college was ABC television and uh, Love Boat was getting, I think a 22 share on Friday nights and oh the three, three networks really owned so much of the, the media in those days. And to have voices of women heard and to have women connected is, is something I'm proud of from women.com and, and blog her, you know, at blog her, we had a revenue model where we brought in advertising and split the ad revenue. So thousands of women who were blogging from remote places in the United States, like Reed Drummond, the pioneer woman who went on to have her own TV show, you know, we were there writing checks to them in the early days and getting the biggest sponsors biggest brands in America to sponsor these voices. So I think helping with, help fund the democratization of voices was, is what I'm proudest of. That's wonderful. So Gina, as a father of daughters, I would love uh, for you to tell us what advice would you give to young women who are entering the digital slash media world today? If you had asked me this question 10 years ago, I would have said, you know, women need to believe in themselves and 
state what's on their mind and that's really not necessary anymore. The women today have a lot of confidence and, you know, have a lot to say, but I would say, trust the fact that you can create the future and that all kinds of things that people can't see today are on the horizon and that you can be a part of that and to be okay with being afraid and look at it as an adventure and, and take risks because that's where you end up with something that's amazing. And, you know, it's, it's an old expression, but it's not where you go, it's who you go with. I have been blessed in my career to work with the most amazing people. And I think it's really important if you're an optimist like I am, hang out with optimists and believe in, you know, a bright outcome. Great advice. So Gina, as we uh, move towards the end of our time together, uh, which is a sad thing to say, uh, I would love for you to discuss your experience at, at BlogHer uh, and, and what you're doing today. And then we'll, we'll, we'll finish with your vision of where you think social media and digital media are going. Right, so I had joined the three co-founders as a consultant in 2007. Uh, this was just when social media was emerging because I was launching a line of skincare and realized that women would be a powerful force in recommending products to one another. And they asked me to come on full time in the coming years. So uh, I helped build that entity and BlogHer was a juggernaut, uh, thousands of bloggers, uh, Lisa Stone, our CEO, gave a town hall with Obama, and we had a conference with 4,000 bloggers in attendance over the years with 134 sponsors, including P&G, who built a house for bloggers to see all of their products. Um, just amazing. Very proud that we could bring financial support to individual voices of women throughout the country. Um, and it's, it's interesting. Uh, I love being in my position now to help support NPR and our member stations and the PBS stations because I want to be there to support their journalism and storytelling. I'm very proud to be uh, a part of their work and to help fund that. And in terms of the future in social media, I had mentioned I am very much an optimist. And so I will take an optimistic view that, you know, some of the more polarizing aspects uh, of social media might settle down and that creative and unique voices and creativity can come onto the scene in a way that only the internet enables. Well, that's great. I really appreciate it. Uh, and appreciate the time that we spent uh, together. I, I, I hope we'll spend more time together, you know, now that we've reconnected. Uh, I, I think I look back at your career in the 
the how additive you've been to this industry and um, I know you used the word proud a few times but you should be proud uh, of your accomplishments and uh, you tru truly are a net OG and thank you for the time I really appreciate it thank you Andy it's been a privilege I really appreciate it thanks so much this podcast was brought to you by Duration Media. For more information on the company and its revenue generation ad tech, please visit their website at durationmedia.net. Like and follow this podcast on Facebook and Instagram. And if you like this episode, make sure to subscribe to the Net OGs on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your audio, so you'll never miss a single episode. Stay tuned for more interviews with Net OGs from companies such as DoubleClick, New York Times, Moda Media, 24-7 Media, Yahoo, NFL, SuperBowl.com, and many, many more. To see the full list and learn more about the Net OGs, visit our website at thenetogs.com. <laughs>